Future Hacker Life Path Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today I'm talking to Dr. Keith Deer. Keith is Director of Artificial Intelligence Innovation at Fujitsu Defense and National Security. He served as an expert advisor to the UK Prime Minister on Defense Modernization and Integrated Review, leading also on UK Space Strategy in Number 10 and advising on national strategies on emerging technologies. So if you're not from UK and if you're not knowledgeable as I am, I just learned that saying number 10 is just like saying the White House. Is that correct, Keith? Yeah, it's number 10 is where the prime minister is and yeah, in the same way that the White House is where you find the president. Okay, awesome. So, you know, he has previously worked as an intelligence officer on the Royal Air Force and continues his service as a group captain reserve in 601 Squadron, leading on science, technology and academic liaison. Keith is the CEO of Airbridge Aviation, a not-for-profit devoting to using uncrewed cargo aircraft for delivery of humanitarian aid. He holds a doctorate in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford, an MA in terrorism and counterterrorism from King's College London, and a BA in history, politics, and international relationship from the University of Lancaster. And you know, you're gonna have to stop, Maria. No, no, no. You know, Keith told me like you don't need to say the whole bill. I said, but it's such a great background. Like I have, I have to say, I have to say the whole thing because it's such. I really thought it was interesting. I am never gonna leave this out amongst my friends, and I, I blame you. <laughs> you know what, Keith? That's why I have to start by having you telling us your journey because. It's such an interesting, like you have history, politics, terrorism, and all the intel for, you know, working with the prime minister and space. So, you know, how, how did you get there? Like, what's, what, what's your story behind that? Wow. So, look, so I guess there's no, nothing simple. Things seem linear in hindsight that definitely weren't linear along the way. But I, I guess I can tell the story and then, yeah, stress that, like, some of the things that have gone well, there's, there's was a huge element of, of luck. And some of the things have gone badly are mostly my fault. But um, I guess my journey, so I, I, I started in, so I went to university and I studied history, politics, and international relations. And I did that because that was what I was interested in. It wasn't like, hey, if I do this, I can go and do this. It was like, no, that, like, this is the stuff that really interests me. And I guess what really interests me is like the interaction of, of people and the way in which people drive history and make things happen, right? Like that dynamic. And just trying to unpick that and say, well, what really, what really was the cause of that? Of course, with history, it's always, well, there's a bit of that and there's a bit of that and there's a bit of something else. In the same way that if we fast forward years later to kind of experimental psychology and you finish your PhD and you always say more research is needed, like that's the two things you need to know about experimental psychology and history. It's, it's always, oh, it's kind of everything and we're not quite sure what caused it. And with experimental psychology, it's always, well, more research is needed. Um, but I mean, that, that, you know, science is fundamentally uncertain. So, I mean, I, and, and I guess I use science in the broadest sense there. So, so that's my career path really. I started off in history, politics and international relations. And I was like, okay, well, what, what do I do next? And I, I thought I would like to do something where I applied that as directly as possible. And that, and that narrows down your field of options quite a lot. I joined the Royal Air Force and I, I applied for other things too. I was looking at the police. I was looking at different agencies where you can, well, I was interested in intelligence really. And again, in understanding, in understanding people and in understanding the world and in digging deeper behind the curtain into, into international relations and what drives decisions and events. And then it was 18 years, so I did, I did a lot of things along the way. Like, like anybody who serves like for that long or longer in, in the military, I did, I did multiple operational tours. I was 
uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. I was in Mali. When Ansar al Din were marching on Bamako in, in a small team, looking at like, okay, how does how does the UK coordinate its response? I was a UN peacekeeper in Abkhazia, serving alongside the Russian military. So it's on the southern border of Russia and the western border of Georgia, disputed province, post-Soviet province. Slightly less tough. I was in Las Vegas for two years. So, um, well, I went to work with the Aggressor Squadron and they're famous because they, in the Cold War, they famously flew Soviet aircraft. And today they mimic potential adversary tactics. And my job was to be the Russian Air Force subject matter expert to understand their doctrine, how they would fly and fight and all that kind of thing. So, Yes, I did that for a couple of years. So I'd I'd written quite a lot, if you like, behind the curtain of secrecy about leadership targeting. So the targeting of kind of, in this case, I was I was it was Taliban leaders, but um, equally it could be Taliban Al Qaeda. But it's something that other countries have done too, and I I wasn't sure that it was super effective. And I I wrote various papers saying, "Hey, I'm I'm not sure," and I I can say that loud now on in like you know on your to you on a podcast because the Air Force eventually sponsored me to do a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism, as you mentioned. And I looked specifically at leadership targeting and I, I published the thesis Beheading the Hydra, which, you know, looks at well, how there are very rare, very, very, very rare circumstances where that approach works. But mostly it's, it's uh, actively counterproductive. And, and that's a whole podcast in itself. Anyway, so that- oh, that's interesting, really. Yeah. But why is that? Do you think that when it happens, the leader becomes like a martyr or something and, and it's like a fool? Yes, yeah, so I uh I interviewed, I think I can say this, I interviewed an Israeli colonel because they had kind of, they were leadership targeting before anyone else in the world was and they were condemned widely for it. And I remember saying to him, I was talking to him about that martyrdom theory and he's like, Keith, we we have some experience about 2,000 years ago when of what happens when you kill the leader of an organization. And I was like, yeah, I guess. He's like, well, so like, don't talk to me about like what the counterproductive effects might be. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what I say now. So, um, so that's a, that's a slightly flippant, and he was being deliberately, deliberately funny and provocative. But like, um, yeah, I, th- I think in general, it, yes, it can cause groups to fragment. But in so in the case of the Taliban, let me let me use the specifics rather than the general. In the case of the Taliban, we dropped the average age of the leadership of the Taliban, we the coalition, from something like thirty five to something like twenty three, and we did it in about two or three years. And what's the difference between like thirty five year old and I'm going to say men because it's the Taliban, thirty five year old men and twenty three year old men? Well, generally, 23-year-old men take more risks and they often are more extreme, right? And so what happened is you kind of fragment the organization, the leadership lost control. Another guy called Alex Strick von Liedschofen and his colleague Felix Schoen wrote a book called Tal Qaeda, the Taliban Al-Qaeda merger. And I think that's one example. I could give you loads, but again, it's, it needed a whole podcast. So basically, more often than not, it fragments the organization. It, it, it means you don't really have anyone to negotiate with anymore, and, and it drives them to greater extremes. And it's a real struggle for the leadership to reassert authority. And I, I think even now you're seeing like significant fights in Afghanistan between the Taliban and more extreme elements that were, I hesitate to say created, because history is always more complicated than that, but that were at least catalyzed by, by that campaign. Okay, so, you know, I told you guys it's a, a great background, so he had to talk about his journey. Anything you'd like to add or can we go to the next question? Look, let me, let me finish. So I, I, my PhD was in experimental psychology. It is important for the things we're going to talk about, right? So, again, trying to understand people, but now through a different discipline, I looked at the effects of surveillance on behavior, how that, how, whether being watched 
makes you more social, less pro-social, what it means to live in a world where we're watched ever more closely than before. And ultimately, I ended up looking and writing, thinking, talking at the intersection of AI and psychology. So humans' capabilities and limitations and machines' capabilities and limitations. And that's my way into emerging tech and ultimately through various projects, which we didn't go into, ending up in the Prime Minister's office advising on science and tech and AI and the future of warfare and Now that's like my full-time job is to look at how we get emerging technologies out of the lab faster and into the hands of people who can make use of them, not not just in national security, but uh, across the the full spectrum of technologies and and practical applications. And be more competitive, right? Like if you have just too too, too many bureaucracies to deal with, it's just a losing global game. Yeah, so so like I very specifically joined... um, well, you said so, for joined Fujitsu for a reason, right? So like it's one because the, the integrated review, which is the UK's, the review of the UK's foreign policy that I played a, a small part in, in number 10. We uh, talked about the Indo-Pacific tilt, which was following the center of economic gravity east to the Indo-Pacific and looking at what we thought would be the defining challenge of the 21st century, the, the, the rise of China, and how we both engage commercially, but also compete with some of the ideal, ideological elements. So like Fujitsu was key to enabling the Indo-Pacific tilt, so that was one reason. But the other reason which speaks specifically to what you just said, Maria, is, is we, in the IR, we talked about how the UK wants to be a science superpower by 2030. Uh, and some of that was through science and tech collaboration with allies. So again, Japan, absolutely key. But we also noted the UK is third in the world for research, but on most metrics, well, it was 26th out of the EU 28 for commercialization of research. And that's a paper in 2016 by the UK's Chamber of British Industry, the CBI. I think it's called Now is the Time to Innovate. And more recently, the ERC or the Enterprise Research Council published a paper that showed the UK is basically consistently going backwards on its ability to commercialize new technologies. And so the new to market inventions. And what that means is we're inventing all these fantastic things and then other countries are like commercializing them. And so their citizens are seeing the benefits of, of our science investment. And so like one of the reasons for taking the job that I have is I was like, okay, I've written about this. I've talked about solutions at the nat- national level, but now I want to go see if I can like actually create them. And, and that's what we're trying to do in my job now. Like how can we speed the path of that? As you say, how do we, like bureaucracy is one. Like Actually, the, what you say is the key thing. It's like process and business model innovation that are the key. The technological innovation follows and you get it wrong if you, if you think of it the other way around. And so I'm kind of in microcosm trying to, trying to say, well, how can we do this better? And what lessons, therefore, can you learn for what I think is a kind of grand strategic competition between um, autocracies and democracies for advantage in science and tech? That's a great challenge you have. I love it. So, you know, so let's begin by the surveillance behavior that I mentioned, right? So living in a connected world, being watched all the time, what does it mean in terms of behavior? Will people behave better? So, you know, when we're talking, when we got to know each other, you actually told me that it's quite the opposite. And then you had an, an example. So can, can we just cover that? Yeah, okay. So when I started looking at this, there are a couple of things that happened that triggered my interest so one is you're an intelligence officer and uh, and also at the, the same time there's an awful lot of debates around privacy surveillance capitalism and you're seeing how much data there is in your domain you're also beginning to realize there's even more out there in open source and then there are two things that really triggered my interest one, one was i mentioned this bit in northern pakistan uh people started painting or these huge pictures portraits of kids that they they said had been killed by drone strikes so that drone operators would see them from the sky and the idea was that it would like the picture would be looking back up and it would deter. But the example that we talked about last time was the, the satellite sentinel project. 
So that that was a project that I think it was Amnesty International, but uh, although Amnesty might have been eyes on Darfur, they're, they're very similar similar campaigns. But anyway, George Clooney got behind them. So if people have heard of it, it's because George Clooney became got behind the Satellite Sentinel project and made it like a gave it a global profile. And what the Satellite Sentinel project did was it, it paid commercial imagery satellites to stare 24-7 at southern Sudan, and then it published the results, not quite live, but not far off, on the internet every day. And the idea was that those on the ground in southern Sudan would know that they were being watched, would start worrying about their individual reputations, their group's reputations, would worry partly that they were going to be in The Hague, but equally that they were going to be condemned when they went home. This was the kind of, I would suggest now looks slightly naive, but at the time that was the idea. And the idea was that just watching alone would have the effects of reducing antisocial or in this case, violent, really violent, if not genocidal behaviour. And, you know, with everything, the answer is it's complicated. But I, I think it's reasonable to say definitely in Eyes on Darfur, which is a very similar campaign, that it had almost precisely the opposite effect. What you saw was that was the extreme use of violence in some in some instances, definitely in Eyes on Darfur, where, where it was the Janjaweed militia. And what they were trying to do was was signal their willingness to use that extreme violence. So when they came to the next town, everybody had already left. Like, they didn't have to fight because people were so scared. And I, I think it's too much to say that this is this inspired, but what it definitely did is it, it kind of presaged what you saw with ISIS, where they, where they themselves published the most horrific violence on the web, with the idea being that everybody was watching and then, you know, fleeing before they got there so they didn't have, in terror so they didn't have to fight. So it was a real challenge, this idea that, okay, well, the more that we watch, the better we behave. And so I was interested from that angle, and then I started looking at the philosophy of it, and you have, like, well, a lot of philosophers that have talked about this, but perhaps the three main ones you have, Sartre has looked at it, Foucault and Bentham, and they all have quite different views as to like what effect that surveillance has on behaviour. And I was like, well, I think now through experimental psychology, we, we can begin to explore like, what that might mean in practice. And so that's why I was interested. That's super interesting. So how do you think that, you know, AI and machine learning can be used to improve national security? Well, it's, it's such a huge question. It's almost hard to know where to start. But if we If I have a stab at it, like like if you start at the edge, as it were, so so you've got AI that might be, in fact, maybe a better way to put this, is a guy called Rick Hughes at Raytheon, who I was at a conference not so long ago, who said, we are swimming in sensors, drowning in data, thirsting for insight. And what he meant by that is like the, the, the services, like the armed forces of, of most countries have deployed more and more sensors on their equipment. They bought more and more platforms to hoover up information. But very rarely have we invested in the technology to, to analyze it. And so... I wrote an article for War on the, Ro War on the Rocks, which uh, eventually got permission from the MOD to publish, I think, in 2018, but it was written about a year before. One of the things that I argued was that it was an absolute disgrace that we still had analysts counting holes in runways, right? Like, that's just a thing that shouldn't happen anymore. So when that data comes in, probably at the edge, it ought to be immediately, we would say, first line processed by an algorithm that says, okay, that runway is unusable because the holes are in the right place. And we think it's, here's an estimate based on historical patterns of how long it will take. So it's just like one example. But then at a higher level, so that's like at the edge, and there are a whole raft of applications across every form of information you can collect. But at a higher level, I've argued that AI will drive greater rigor into decision making. And that's because you, when you're going to begin to apply symbolic AI or good old fashioned AI, so like if you crudely, the idea of a recipe, if then, and you know, these kind of like logic based AI, you have to be really explicit about the logic that you're applying. And in doing so, you force people to make explicit premises that, that they really want to. So I, I often say that before we can have explainable AI, we first have to have explainable humans, right? And then from a machine learning perspective, that's also true. When you say, well, I want my, I want my machine learning to be explainable. Well, firstly, at least current level machine learning, that's not, that is not possible. 
But again, therefore, before you say I'm not willing to trust it, well, why are you trusting that person that you currently rely on to make decisions? Does, does she or he always make explicit the logic on which their decisions are based? And I would say when you drive at that, very few decision making decisions that in almost any walk of life are actually heavily data and evidence and logic based. They're heuristic, they're impressionistic, they're based on a whole raft of factors. And so I think, so if you're going to apply AI, I think one of the effects it will have is is revolutionizing decision-making and driving greater rigor. I think I've said before that I think as AlphaGo Zero indicates, we, we're eventually, we're going to have to start trusting AI to make decisions when we know it's right, but when we don't understand it. And that's a huge problem. But when you can demonstrate that it makes decisions with a lower false positive or a lower false negative rate than humans, well, now you're in a position where, where you're going to have to trust it because you know it it's more reliable most of the time in the same way that you might trust a friend who generally makes better decisions in the split second than you do. If that happens often enough, eventually you won't ask them to explain it. You just realize you've got to trust them because they make. So, so I think that's, that's another way. And I I think in, in short, helping us process vast amounts of information, both at the edge and in the center, a longer version of that same thing is I think it will completely revolutionize how we make decisions and change the nature of human organizations. You know, I'm just picturing it, uh, you know, saying exactly what I just said, like to a congressman, you know, <laughs> just trust the technology. But, you know, it's right, right? So, okay, so let's go back to this whole, you know, behavior piece. What I feel today is that, you know, when people go to the social media, maybe because, you know, they're not being seen and, and, and really in front of someone, People just allow themselves to have a, a really sometimes aggressive behavior. People that say things that they wouldn't tell in someone that, you no, know, if you're just in front of him and things like that. With the metaverse, you still have the possibility of having people hiding behind those avatars. So do you believe human behaviors about to get worse? As you know, we kind of already see that happening on just the you know regular digital world. You think that when people start just interacting and pretending to be other people, things are about to get worse? So we start by looking forwards, but then would you forgive me if I look back a little bit to answer that question? So I think the first thing is when you're not sure who, who a quotation is from, you attribute it to Oscar Wilde, right? That's like an official rule, I think. So I think it's Oscar Wilde who said, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. And today we'd say, give a person a mask and they'll tell you the truth. But nevertheless, I think there's something to that. So you often, I think social media plays a role in allowing people to say things that they'd say anyway. And often you, what you see is who they are, is one, is one element. And, and yeah, it can lead to extreme behaviors. But I think we, there's a really good book called Everybody Lies that came out not long after Obama was elected that showed the kind of an awful lot of the extremely racist searches that were perpetrated seconds after, you know, seconds, minutes, days after he was elected and spikes in areas where you would think people are much more liberal than that. And that's just one example. It's a whole book of like what people really Google, what people really ask. So I, I think actually we learn quite a lot about the reality of human behavior that we otherwise don't see through this. I think that uh, something I read recently, which summed this up quite well, is like whenever you're using these technologies, they, you're searching Google, but Google's searching you was the way I think I heard it phrased. And that's true on Twitter as well, right? Every time you tweet, you might, yeah, okay, you might think you're completely anonymous, but actually a lot of that data is being collected at the same time. And so people are coming to understand you in ever greater detail. And you can say, well, maybe they can't match my anonymous Twitter account. And I would say, really? Like there was a study done by Robin Dunbar's lab at Oxford that had four pieces of, of anonymized data and they could identify who the individual was. And when you think that companies like Tower Data, uh, Exalate, Nielsen, the, the data brokers and data aggregators, Tower Data don't do this anymore, but they used to give this list on their website that I talked about at conferences that said, you know, we've got 
80 or 90 percent of people in America's email addresses, home address, like they connected all this data and they could tell you incredible things about people. So I, like at that point, you haven't really got privacy anymore. You haven't really got anonymity. So we're seeing like two things in tension at the same time. We're seeing like people able to hide and people also more exposed and less private than they've ever been. So, so like it's enabling. It seems like those two things shouldn't be reconcilable, but I think they are. And then in the metaverse, well, that's like a whole, like a whole other conversation at its own. But to try and give a brief answer, which I think we're learning, I'm not, I'm not so good at. But, but I think, yeah, you'll probably have some of some. The metaverse is about multiple worlds, not one world. And I am sure there will be some worlds where you can be completely anonymous, or at least try to be completely anonymous. Noting my previous point on the ability to trace your data back and identify you, um, but where you build worlds that allow anon- anonymity to allow more extreme behaviour, right? In the same way that like there've been masquerade balls that allowed people to kind of escape the, the social norms of the time. I, I think those worlds will exist in the metaverse. I think there'll also be worlds where you have a, like a permanent avatar and you build a reputation associated with that avatar and that avatar becomes trusted. And those worlds won't allow it. Like the point about these kind of decentralized worlds is they'll set their own rules. And so in, you, you, like you and I might, I mean, maybe we wouldn't, maybe sometimes we'd go, let's go be anonymous and do like wild things. But other times it'd be like, no, I want to be that avatar that's trusted. I'm going to go and live in that world where I'm known. And I, so I think like those rules will vary world by world. So a, a, as ever, a, a long answer, but hopefully one that like addresses the sort of different complexities of what's a fascinating, what's a fascinating question. That, you know, metaverse is going to be just a party for the multiple personality guys. You know, that's what I, I just thought about it because it just can, you just, you're going to be really crazy be anyone anytime anywhere so maria i'm gonna i'm gonna try and insist that you leave that in and i'm gonna say look i think that's a hundred percent true and and like in psychology there's a brilliant book that my supervisors uh dr kevin dutton and professor elaine fox pointed me out quite early on in my psychological studies which was it's called the person and the situation and basically and and they're going to kill me for now like not doing justice to their their tuition here but basically the the argument in the person and the situation is that actually situational factors are much more important than individual factors we all like to think well like these stable personalities always act the same way and that the argument in that book is that situational factors are much more important so that suggests that like okay well when you're in that world where you're completely anonymous the masquerade ball or the or the metaverse under behind your anon avatar you might do all sorts of things you would never do normally. And that is you. It's just that you are, we're all those multiple personality peoples that you, that you mentioned. So, so uh, you know, you have to leave this in now, Maria. There's no escape. <laughs> we will, we will. I promise, I promise. Okay, so listen, I still have so much to talk about. So I'm going to end this episode one, but everybody just make sure you keep going to the next episode because we still have so much to talk about. So hang in there, everybody. We're going to be back with Dr. Kit Deer. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.